The Emerald Lane podcast is supported by the generosity of its listeners. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider contributing at mlane.com. That's em-lane.com. Your donations will allow us to continue with the focus and effort required to produce these finely crafted episodes. Now, without further ado, The Emerald Lane. of the state of consciousness of the overall population. Could you give us a brief evaluation on how the presidents of the United States since John F. Kennedy leading up to Donald Trump go together with, well, hopefully a rise in consciousness in the population? Well, in the U.S. I've seen some changes, but, uh, and I think some of them have been real changes. And one of the things that I guess I would point at would be uh, race relations. When I was growing up, when I was a young person, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, um, there were separate restrooms for black and white. You know, blacks rode in the back of the bus. Blacks didn't sit at the same tables in a restaurant as whites did. There was a lot of obvious racism going on everywhere, very much, very open. There was no sense of the general public that there was anything wrong with that. You know, the general public, well, that's just the way it was. That's the way it is, and that's the way it should be, and there was no sense of that even being a problem. No awareness. Then came the 1960s. And in the 1960s, all of that started to change. A lot of the credit would go to Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King was successful because in his mind, it wasn't about race. It was about quality of the individual. He didn't separate things out by race. He separated things out by what was moral and what was immoral, what was right and what was wrong for everybody. And that was, that was very powerful. So we did go through changes. And all of the things I just mentioned all changed. They all disappeared. All of those trappings of racism went away. Uh, it got to be kind of a, a sign of being uh, subpar if you voiced any kind of racist comments rather than being normal. You know, people who said things that were racist, everybody else kind of looked down at them like there's something wrong with them. So it got to be a negative in our culture, whereas before it was neutral. Racism was just, the, it just was, and now it just was wrong. So I'd say, yeah, there was a lot of growing up doing there. But we've seen now, if we move from Kennedy, where a lot of that race awareness was developed in his term, and afterwards, we see as Trump comes in, 
But a lot of that more polite, less racist behavior was um, pretty superficial. That uh, there were a lot of people, not the majority, not as many as there were before. Whereas before the whole culture thought racism was normal, because that's the way it had always been. Now it's a smaller 20%, 30%, something like that. So it's a whole lot less than it was. But a lot of those same old feelings are still bubbling away down underneath the surface. The only thing that Trump did is he made it so that people could voice the way they felt rather than keep their mouths shut and pretend otherwise. So the closet racist, if you will, the one that uh, had all those racist feelings but knew that if he opened his mouth everybody would look down at him and think that there was something wrong with him, now he could speak up because suddenly it was okay to be racist again, you see. So Trump didn't create anything that wasn't already there. He just gave it voice and made it to where it could bubble up to the top in clear view. And I would think that in a lot of ways, it's a good thing. You know, things that fester unseen tend to last longer and are more insidious than stuff that's obvious that you can see it. So I think this thing we're going through now with Trump, where a lot of racists and other uh, not nice attitudes are kind of bubbling up into the public view, I think that's kind of good. We need to get that out. We needed to see that, that was down there and not pretend that it wasn't just because you couldn't see it. It didn't express itself. Now it's expressing itself. All right, those ideas are back on the table, you see, for discussion and understanding and growth. And that's a good thing in the long run. People need to be authentic. They need to be who they are. And only by being who they are do they have an opportunity to change and to serve as lessons, good examples or bad examples you know, for the rest of us. So I think all that's probably in the long term going to be an advantage, not a disadvantage. Festering out of sight is not you know, on the process of changing. Getting up where everybody can see it makes us rethink and reevaluate. So I think that part's good. But yes, there's been change. Uh, we're not anywhere near the state of an acceptance of racism that we were in the 1950s. And we didn't backslide. It's not like, oh, it's just like the bad old days. It's not at all like the bad old days. Black people have made huge gains. They're very much seen in the, in the majority of science as just people with different skin color and that's of no consequence. It's made a huge gains from the 60s until now. And I don't think those gains will ever go away. People change. People grew up. They just never thought about it. You know, if you grow up in a racist culture, you don't think about it as being racist. It's just the way it was. And the 60s got people to look at it and say, well, yeah, this is what we're doing, and that's not so good. Whereas before, they just didn't think about it because that's just the way it was. So that's what Trump's going to do. He's going to get a lot more people thinking about it, that we're just kind of gliding along, not thinking about it. And it'll, be a, it'll turn out to be a, a positive thing in our growth in the long run. And it's also true about the, uh, uh, you know, the awareness and the critical thinking. I think the U.S. is going to learn a, a rather big lesson in what happens if there is no critical thinking going on. You know, 
So people will take note of that. It's always good to let your ugly stuff come up to the top where everybody can see it because then you have a chance to, to learn how to grow it. Otherwise, you'll probably never have to grow it. Ariel, is it a million D? What is life for Elon Musk? I find as, as I get older, I find that question to be maybe more and more confusing or troubling or uncertain. Um, I think particularly when you see the advancement of something like video games. You know, like say 40 years ago, you had video games, the most advanced video game would be like, like Pong, where you had like two rectangles and a, and a dot, and you're like batting it back and forth. I played it. Oh yeah, like me too, exactly. That's I played Pong. Old. And that was like, wow, that was a pretty fun game at the time. Um, but now you can see a video game that's uh, photorealistic, almost photorealistic, and millions of people playing simultaneously. And, um, and you see where things are going with virtual reality. Um, and augmented reality, and if you extrapolate that out into the future with any rate of progress at all, like even 0.1% uh, or something like that uh, a year, then eventually those games will be indistinguishable from reality. They'll be so realistic, you will not be able to tell the difference between that game and the reality as we know it. Um, and then it seems like, well, how do we know that that didn't happen in the past? 
and that we're not in one of those games ourselves. Interesting. I mean, could be. <laughs> Everything is possible in life. Like, I mean, yeah, particularly like things seem to be accelerating to, some, to something. Isn't it? I mean, if, if we look at our life in the past 20, it's much getting faster. faster and faster. Is it so? My question is really how life will be in air 20, 30, 50 years from now? Well, I think this is one of those things that's quite difficult to predict. Um, when you think of, say, uh, I mean, the first controlled powered flight was 1903 with the Wright brothers. Um, and then 66 years later, we put the first people on the moon. If you'd asked people, say, in 1900, what are the odds of man landing on the moon, they would have said, that's ridiculous. And if you talk, try to talk to them about the internet, they would not even know what the heck you're even, what are you talking. even talking about? Like, but today, uh, with a $100 device, you can video conference with anyone in the world. And if you have a Wi-Fi connection, it's basically free. Free to have an instant visual communication with anyone, or even with millions of people. You know, with social media, you can communicate to millions of people simultaneously. And, and you, you can Google something and ask any question. It's like an oracle of wisdom that you can ask almost qu any question and get an instant response. It would have been incredibly difficult to predict these things in the past, even the relatively recent past. So I think the one thing that we can be quite certain of is that any predictions we make today for what the future will be like in 50 years will be wrong. <laughs> That's for sure. I can tell you what I hope the future has. Uh, I mean, I hope we are out there on Mars and maybe beyond Mars, the moons of Jupiter. Um, I hope we're traveling frequently throughout the solar system, preparing for missions to nearby star systems. Um, I think all of this is possible within 50 years. And I think we'll, we'll see autonomy and artificial intelligence advance tremendously. I think that's actually quite near term. My guess is in probably 10 years, it will be very unusual for cars to be built that are not fully autonomous. 10 years. 10 years from now. Yeah. I think almost all cars built will be capable of full autonomy in about 10 years. As it is, the Tesla cars that are made today have the sensor system necessary for full autonomy.
Yes. 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 Let's go. Yes. Carousel. <laughs> Dream colors. I love it. I love that song. That is by Prince Rama, and the song is called Sochi. And that song sounds like they are on mushrooms, coming through your speaker. You hear that haze when you do the pink noise with the synthesizers and the bells, the illusion of the Maya spinning in your eyes and your head. While we're on the topic of mushrooms, I've actually been looking into microdosing psilocybin. Psilocybin is the active ingredient and psychedelic mushrooms. And you know, the reason why a lot of people don't know this, but I haven't smoked weed in 10 years. I don't drink. I don't really do anything to alter my consciousness other than meditation and breathing. And you know, it'd be nice to every now and then open that portal, 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 portal open portal, that door, portal, portal. get that perspective from the mushroom. I believe that mushrooms and human beings have a history on this planet. And despite how the governments or square people try to cast things like marijuana or mushrooms as these deviant, hardcore, you know, heroin type of drugs, it's just not true, man. This, these things grow naturally on the planet. And I think that they're here to, to help human beings evolve. If they're taken in responsible ways. Not be loaded up all the time, constantly on mushrooms. That's ridiculous. I'd like to do it every now and then to just give me that reminder and give me that reset button. Is that, you know, is that so wrong? Is that, that's reasonable to ask. So I've been looking into it. You know, I've only done mushrooms three times. And the first time I did it, I will never forget that day. Shout out to my friend Jay Tram, who came through with the chocolates on that fateful Saturday afternoon. I think it was. Oh my God. What a beautiful sight. They look like chocolate Rolos. It was about that size. You guys remember Rolos? No one eats Rolos anymore. <laughs> uh, and we took these shrooms and we went to this festival and we walked through downtown Brooklyn near BAM and the joy, I, I can just say that, the joy that was coming out of my eye sockets, the ice that was melting away from my body and my mind and the innocence that was overflowing, I'll never forget that day, making friends, and I remember the sky. There, there was, there was, it was a, the clouds were streaking across the sky. You'd see like a jet streak across the sky into the orange magenta clouds. And you'd look down and you'd talk to somebody for five minutes. And then you'd look back up and it was like a thousand Monets on acid painting in the sky. The creativity is so vivid. And it was ever-changing. It just kept changing. Masterpiece after masterpiece after masterpiece. I think about this a lot. Like I'll be in a shopping center parking lot or a grocery store parking lot or whatever. And 
I'll be struck by the beauty of, of a sunset and I'll pause and I'll take it in like, my God. And I think to myself, it never gets old. No matter how old I get, no matter how many sunsets I see, a new one comes and makes me stop in my tracks. I mean, the creativity of these architects, of whatever is created, the simulation that we inhabit, the creativity is astounding. Is, it is godlike, for sure. Actually, there's another, there's another kind of interesting part to the story of the, my first mushroom trip. So remember, we're in downtown Brooklyn, and we're by this place called BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And there's a festival going on. We're on shrooms. I'm like a little boy, you know, super innocent, wide open, wild. We run into this actress. Yeah, you, have you ever heard of Maggie Gyllenhaal? Right? And she's doing a play at BAM at the time. And in the festival and all the chaos, all the madness, she's standing on the corner with a couple of her friends. Me on, you know, in the state that I was in, I see her and I run up on her. Now, the reason I ran up on her was I always thought, you know, before this happened, when I would see her face, that she looked kind of like the girl I was dating at the time. You know, the girl I was dating at the time is black, half black, half Chinese. But something in the facial structure, they, they just kind of looked the same. They were, there was a little resemblance. And I, I just would think that in my mind, like just randomly. You know how you have these passing thoughts, like, oh, she kind of resembles, whatever. So flash forward to the mushroom trip. I see Maggie Gyllenhaal and I just rush her. I mean, I don't rush her, but I approach her. I immediately just, I say, yo, you look like my girlfriend, which was, you know, could be taken. It was kind of weird, intense. My eyes are, the, the pupils of my eyes are like the size of quarters <laughs> because of the mushrooms. And I'm like, yo, you look, you look like my girlfriend. I remember she was with two dudes and one of the guys was this little Hispanic gay gentleman. And I remember he was really, you know, protective of her. He got started saying real snippy things. I'm sh yeah, I'm sure she looks like your girlfriend. I'm so sure. You know, he started trying to block or whatever. Not, not that I was trying to get at her. Remember, I'm on shrooms and this is, I'm, my heart is innocent like a little boy. And this guy's opposing me. I remember at the time I was so open that it hurt my feelings. I, I just remember my arms dropping to my sides and I just, I could have cried. Not because he was aggressive towards me, but because the ugliness of him not believing my purity, of opposing my innocence. And it was so ugly, like humanity. <laughs> yeah. And I, we, I remember we walked away and it took me like a, like a block to kind of recover. Like I was so sad and bummed out. But then we went into Fort Greene Park and we started playing in the trees, looking at the sky on mushrooms. And I forgot all about it. So 
So that was my mushroom, that was my first mushroom trip. <laughs> Come on, yo, I gotta do it again. There's no weed in my life, and I can't just sit back and be drinking alcohol. I try to drink here and there, but alcohol is a low vibe, man. You drink it, you get slow, you get sloppy. You're not, you're not thinking crystalline, spiritual, sublime thoughts on alcohol. You know, you're getting real shittish and aggressive, slap boxing and things. So, microdosing, psilocybin. Will it happen? Will it not? <laughs> I guess we'll just have to see. Now back to Oh, 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 
revelation actually I was in a relationship and then I applied this to self-talk but I was being spoken to in a certain way by a woman and I just thought to myself and then I said you know if a, if a guy talked to me like this on the street I would just beat the fuck out of him you know if a friend talked to me like this he wouldn't be a friend if my parents talked to me like this my family I wouldn't talk to them so why would I deal with this kind of talk from a romantic relationship but you think about it that's pattern brainwashing right you're supposed to endure a certain kind of mistreatment from other people but it, it doesn't really make sense. Well, then I started to think of my own ways. Whenever I make a mistake, I go to, like, absolutes. You idiot, you always forget things. You always get lost. This is why you have to leave early. And then I thought, well, if I talk to other people like this, nobody would want to talk to me. Right? Why? Because that's negative energy, negative vibes. So I'm sending negative energy to myself 24-7 without even realizing it. So then that's why you say, with your self-talk, which is a conversation you have, just imagine you're talking to a friend that you want to help, but that you want to remain your friend. So a friend comes in, oh yeah, you know, my, life, my wife left me or something like that. You don't say, God, you fucking, of course you did, you fucking idiot, you know, like, I would have left you too. You're, no, you just say, well, that's terrible, let's kind of reconstruct what happened, figure out how to build back from this. It's the same thing, you lose your job. If a friend lost a job, you know, what are the big ones? Health. Uh, relationships and career. Those are the three sort of universal issues everyone have. If somebody lost a job, you not say, wow, your life is over. You lost this job. Whew. But who here has lost a job? Okay. What'd you say to yourself when you lost a job? Fuck. <laughs> right? I'm fucked, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're going to be broke. You're going to be on the street. You're going to be destitute. You're never going to have any money. Now, now, how helpful was that to your life? Right? And would you talk to your friends like that? No. If your friend lost a job, you would say, well, that sucks. You know, go cry for a weekend and be depressed. And then on Monday, let's kind of figure something out, right? So you think about it that way. When you reframe the conversation, you think about it that way. Suddenly, you talk to yourself a little bit differently. I don't, I don't tell myself the world is unicorns and I'm so happy and everything's perfect. I'm realistic about the world. But the way to avoid that negative self-talk is you, you avoid absolutes. Nobody here is always terrible. That's what we want to say. I never do things right. I always make this mistake. That's what we say. Well, you just avoid absolutes. And the way you talk to yourself is you just start to say, okay, I've made a mistake this time, and then here's what I'm going to learn from the mistake, and here's how I'm going to avoid it. And then as that, as that process runs through your head, it leads you to our next part which is framing. How do you frame things? And framing is probably the most important part of self-talk even though it's its own little thing. You can say... 
that we live in is this. The government taxes you in order to go and destabilize foreign governments and start wars and create massive amounts of conflict, resentment, hatred, and murderous intent around the world. Then the government says, well, you know, it's kind of weird, but there's a lot of people around who seem to want to do America harm, both domestically and overseas. So now we're going to need to take a lot of money from you to develop massive amounts of hacking tools in order to spy upon everything that you do because you see, we're all about just keeping you safe. That is the cycle. Does anyone out there really think that this is a good idea? Does anyone out there think that this net catches a lot of bad guys? Is there anyone out there who really supports this, who really thinks this is a great idea? I mean, outside the alphabet soup of agencies playing with literally the power of the gods and playing with surveillance techniques and mechanisms that uh, the NKVD and the Stasi could only have dreamed about. In 1984, there's a screen that listens and watches what you do. It may have come 
a little later than anticipated. But its powers are almost infinitely greater than imagined. And that is an important thing to remember. Is there anyone you would trust with this power? Whenever you think that the government can do something good with the powers that it has, imagine that your worst enemy has those powers to be used against you. Because sooner or later, unless we push back, that will be the situation we find ourselves in. As I went out one morning To breathe the air around Tom Payne I spied the fairest damsel That ever did walk in chains I offered her my hand She took me by the arm I knew that very instant She meant to do me harm Depart from me this moment I told her with my voice Said she, but I don't wish to Said I, but you have no choice I beg you, sir, she pleaded From the corners of her mouth I will secretly accept you And together we'll fly south Came running from across the field Shouting at this lovely girl And commanding her to yield And as she was letting go her grip Up Tom Payne did run Sorry, sir, he said to me I'm sorry for what she's done
Um, the next big disruption, electric vehicles. So the internal combustion engine is about 17 to 21% energy efficient. 80% of the energy in the tank actually goes up in smoke. Now, the electric motor is 90 to 95% efficient. Maintenance, assuming you don't have an EV, your car has 2,000 plus moving parts. The Model S has 18. That's fewer than 1% of the moving part of the internal combustion engine automobile. Now, what does that mean? Maintenance is essentially zero. So, uh, by 2020, maybe before, if the curve accelerates, EVs will be cheaper to buy, and they will be 10 times to 100 times cheaper to maintain. So just like film gave ways to digital cameras, essentially, at that point, it'll make no economic sense for anybody to pay more money for, for a gasoline or diesel car that costs also 10 times as much to maintain. So this is the tipping point. The tipping point in the auto industry is going to come around 2020, maybe 2019. Uh, by 2022, even the low end, the industry will be able to build a $20,000 EV. So essentially what this cost curve says is by 2025, all new vehicles will be electric. All new buses, all new cars, all new tractors, all new vans will be electric. Anything that moves on four wheels will be electric by 2025. All new vehicles will be electric. Parking is going to be obsolete. The concept of car ownership itself is going to be obsolete. We're going to go from all ICE to all EV, from human-driven to computer-driven, from ownership to car sharing. And when you put that together, essentially this is what the disruption is going to be. By 2030, all cars will be, all vehicles, buses, vans, tractors, you name it, will be electric, self-driving, and car-shared. Last but not least, how are we going to power all of that? Solar energy. Now remember, solar energy is a technology. As technology, it has gone down in cost by more than 200 times since 1970. 200 times. Um, and the installed base has doubled every two years since at least 1990. How many more doublings until solar becomes 100% of the world's energy? Seven more doublings. That's 14 more years until solar is 100% of the world's energy. Right? Can it continue to grow at this rate? The mantra for four decades in solar has been something called grid parity. The point at which solar on the rooftop is cheaper than what the utility provides. But I think, I call it not grid parity, but God parity. And this is not a religious thing, by the way. What is God parity? The point at which rooftop solar, no matter where you are, and you can be in Oslo with 900 hours of sunshine, uh, San Francisco with 1,600, or Santiago with 2,400, at some point, rooftop solar, unsubsidized, is going to become cheaper than the cost of transmission. 
Wind solar on your rooftop becomes cheaper than the cost of transmission, essentially even if central generation generates at zero. Even if somewhat magically sometime in the next 30 years somebody invents fusion at zero, when you add the cost of transmission, it won't be able to compete with solar on your rooftop. That is going to happen in every single large market in the world by about 2020. And solar plus storage, remember storage is going at an even faster rate than solar is. Solar plus storage on your rooftop is going to be cheaper than transmission by 2022. Boom. Disruption. Disruption is going to happen everywhere. Okay? In Australia, they're already at this point. Solar on the rooftop, unsubsidized, is already cheaper than the cost of transmission. So this is not something that's going to happen in the future. This is something that's already happening today. That's God parity. And at that point, every form of central generation, nukes, gas, coal, gone. Right? Because it doesn't make any sense, even if they generate at zero. Now, what about utility scale? Are cities going to generate 100% of their energy? No, not all cities. We're still going to have data centers, right? We're still going to have
Kenny Lemur. A lot of new age music in this episode. I've been fascinated lately with new age music, the genre. Have you ever heard of new age music? It was an experimental movement that took place in the mid 70s and culminated in, or it kind of ended in like the mid 80s. And essentially it was these electronic composers that were creating space music. You know, there might be a song where a guy is trying to paint the feeling of standing on the surface of Jupiter, looking at a green sunset, or meeting a strange being in a parallel dimension, looking into that being's eyes. What kind of silver music would you be hearing in the background, in your mind? Some of it was romantic and melodic. Some of it puts you in a very weird place, which is my specialty, things that I like. So anyway, the thing that was cool about new age music was that it, it had this really beautiful ideal behind it, which pretty much was the, this quest to create this utilitarian, positive, psychic experience for human beings, or anchor a listener in these very heightened moments of novelty and cosmic awareness. And you know, it was just a, it was a very unique moment, man, because you had these artists bringing the metaphysics, philosophy, psychedelics, and hybridizing that with science and technology. So, you know, remember, this is the late 70s. People's had these huge walls of synthesizers, percussive machines, and you know, people were using computers to record for the first time. This is, this is the moment that people like Steve Jobs and Apple were birthed from. It was kind of like hippie counterculture 2.0, where, whereas before in the 60s, when you had the new age movement, this was the new age movement mixed with technology and software, coding, you know, it, it, just, it just goes from there. Like new age has a lot of influence on the planet, on our culture, and it's little known because it was so niche and so weird that it's easily passed over, but it influenced hip hop, it informed new wave music, R&B, you know, I mean, this is where the concept of drum programming sequencing, quantization, all of the founding blocks of hip hop and electronic music, that was the birthplace, dude. Just like the Apple computer, man. You know, it was made by a bunch of geeks and freaks, people who were into mathematics and Eastern religion and It's It's crazy to me how it, how little known this time in musical history is. No one talks about it, but yet it's one of the most interesting and influential moments of musical history, of modern civilization, actually. I'd go so far to say that. 
anyway, uh, I'm getting super, I'm getting way off track here, but the point is, is that I'm, that was the ideal behind this thing called new age music. And actually, a really interesting piece of history, here in Los Angeles, where I am, my name is Sonny Coates, by the way, we have a radio station called The Wave, 94.7 The Wave. Now they play smooth jazz and R&B, I think, probably now. But when they were founded in 1986, it was the first new age radio station. They didn't even call themselves a radio station. They called themselves a mood service. And it was called The Wave, which, was, which is very interesting. Because you know how you might hear young people nowadays talking about, it's, it's a popular slang term now a wave, being on a certain kind of wave. You know, it's kind of like a, a you know, groovy talk, you know, frequency, waves, vibrations. But we actually had a new age radio station. New age. Early 80s was the peak. It was the gourmet kiss of the fingers, new age moment. And I always found it fascinating. That, that era in general, to me, is just is intriguing. The switching over from the 70s into the 80s. It seemed to be a shift from the analog to the deeper electronic man. You know, the, the, they're on the frontier of electronic dystopian madness. Okay, look, think about this. Remember when, when we were approaching 1999? And everyone was freaked out about Y2K. Well, shit, people were freaked out about the Prince song, 1999. First of all, that was a weird year to be approaching. You know, what does that mean, 1999? You know, while the sky is going to turn purple. And then 2000, everyone was freaked out about Y2K. Computers shutting off and us going back into the Stone Ages. But in 1980, they were approaching 1984, which was the George Orwell dystopian novel. And culturally, what that meant was, you know, Big Brother and technology taking over the land and all the grass disappearing. And there was a threat also of nuclear war. And, you know, there was just all this electronic paranoia and possibility. So... You can imagine people being weirded out and the culture reflecting that weirdness and the sound getting very eccentric. There is no
the well, I think this is going to sound a little. Uh, I mean, it's, it seems like somewhat uh, trivial or or silly, but I've been saying this for many years now. But I think that the, the solution to urban congestion is a network of tunnels under cities, and say I don't mean a a two D plane of tunnels. I mean tunnels that go many levels deep. So you can always go deeper than you you can go up. Like the, the deepest mines are taller than the tallest buildings. Um, so you could have a network of tunnels that is 20, 30, 40, 50 levels, if, as many levels as you want, really. Um, and so given that, you can overcome the congestion situation in, in any city in the world. Uh, the challenge is just figuring out how do you build tunnels quickly and at low cost and with high safety. So if tunneling technology can be improved to the point where you can build tunnels fast, cheap, and safe, then that would completely get rid of any traffic situations in cities. Um, and so I think that's why I think it's an important technology. Uh, Washington, D.C., L.A., and most of the major American cities, most major cities in the world, suffer from severe traffic issues. And it's mostly because you've got these buildings which are, you have tall buildings that are 3D and you have a road network that is one level. And then people generally want to go in and out of those buildings at the exact same time. So then you get the traffic jam. Let's come back to 4th of June 2015 at your office in SpaceX. I ask you, would you Thank you for joining us for this latest edition of the podcast, letting the, uh, the format expand and change a little bit, let me get on the mic a little bit more. My name is Sonny Coates, I'm your host. This is a product of the Emerald Lane Communication Group out of Los Angeles, California. Yo, do your thing out there, be creative, don't listen to what other people tell you, proceed, actualize that vision, it takes heart baby, it takes courage, <laughs> oh, donate to the podcast, at the website, em-lane.com. And check out the Emerald Lane Band. Also, there's a record out there streaming on Apple and Spotify and all that stuff. And lastly, follow me on Twitter. My name is Sonny Coates, S-O-N-N-Y-C-O-A-T, as in Tom, E-S. Hit me on Twitter, you can ask questions, throw out suggestions, whatever. Connect with me. 
I'll see you next time. Next time. Next time. Next time. Thank you.